This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Gabor Mate. Dr. Gabor Mate is a renowned speaker and best-selling author and is highly sought after for his expertise on a range of topics, including addiction, stress, and childhood development. Gabor Mate has written several best-selling books, including the award-winning In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, and When the Body Says No, exploring the stress-disease connection. He's also the co-founder of Compassion for Addiction, a new nonprofit that focuses on addiction. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Gabor and I spoke about the immune system and how it is connected to healthy emotional expression and why it matters so much that we own our healthy anger and express it. We also talked about how our body can function as a teacher and how he views such diagnoses as ADHD and depression and how his views differ from the way the medical community views those conditions. We also talked about understanding healing through a biopsychosocial lens and how a great number of mental health issues can actually be traced to childhood compensation. Finally, we talked about what Gabor is currently focusing on as he enters his 73rd year of life. Here's my conversation with the very direct and brilliant Dr. Gabor Mate. Gabor, I want to just begin by thanking you for making the time for this conversation. I know how busy you are, and I feel appreciative. Thank you so much. Well, I look forward to our, our talk. Okay, let's jump right in. I wanted to begin by talking about you, and particularly your early years in Budapest. You were born in 1944, a Jewish infant, under German occupation at the time, Budapest. And what I'm really curious to know is a little bit about your early life experiences and how you feel they've informed your work. Yes. So I was born in January 44, and uh, when I was two months old, the Wehrmacht, the German army, occupied Hungary, including Budapest, the capital city. The extermination of the Jewish populations that had been nearly complete across Eastern Europe had not yet touched Hungary. But now with the German occupation, it was our turn. And so within five months, uh, the Nazis exterminated half a million Hungarian Jews, mostly in Auschwitz, but elsewhere as well. Amongst them, my maternal grandparents. Eichmann, the Adolf Eichmann, the... Uh, 
the SS um, organizer of the deportations uh, said that the operation went like a dream. Hmm. They killed more people in a shorter period of time than had they'd been able to do anywhere else. Now, in Budapest, which is in the center of the city, center of the country, I should say, the Jews were not deported because, but the, the Germans uh, exterminated, uh, deported the Jewish population of Hungary in a concentric fashion, starting from the outside of the country, moving in towards the center. And just before they got to the center, which is where my mother and I lived, international outcry had been so vociferous, including messages from the Pope and Theodore Roosevelt, that's not, not Theodore, but um, Delano, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that the Hungarian government actually put a stop to the deportations. But we lived under Nazi occupation for the remainder of that year and into the beginning of the following year. The maybe the salient story that I tell for most times, because it informs so much of my work, is that the day after the army, the German army occupies Budapest, my mother calls the pediatrician to say that, would you please come and see my son, because he's crying all the time. And the pediatrician says, of course I, I will come, but I should tell you, all my Jewish babies are crying. And so that anecdote uh, told by my mother speaks to the very essence of uh, childhood experience, which is to say that what happens to the parents happens to the child. And A.H. Almas, who interview with you, I greatly appreciated listening to mm-hmm. Paul, as in one of his books, and I'm quoting here now, and I quote this very often. And In fact, he may be the person I quote most often. Uh, he says, The child is very open and can feel the pain and suffering going on in its immediate environment. The child is aware of its own body and can also feel the tension, rigidity, and pain in the body of the mother or of anyone else he is with. If the mother is suffering, the baby suffers too. The pain never gets discharged. So that insight, and coupled with that anecdote, has informed a lot of my work, whether it comes to physical illness or addictions or any other um, affliction that human beings might face. My father came back uh, from forced labor, and my mother hadn't known whether he was dead or alive for almost a year and a half. Uh, The Germans were finally expelled from Budapest by the Russian army, January of 1945, but not before, a month before the liberation of Budapest, my mother had handed me to a complete stranger in the streets of Budapest because she could no longer guarantee my survival. Jews were again being deported and killed by Hungarian Nazis. She didn't know when it would be her turn, and so she gave me to a strange woman in the street, and I didn't see her for a month, which then... um, ingrained in me a lifelong sense of abandonment and um, and loss, which at age 73 still shows up sometimes in my relationship with my wife. Now, do you want me to go on about my childhood? Well, I'm curious just to understand something a little more clearly. When you sure. read that quote by A.H. Almas and the idea that the parent's pain, particularly in this case the mother's pain, is yeah. felt and passed down almost like the child is transparent to it and takes it in. And you said this has informed so much of your work. Tell me how. How has that idea influenced how you work with patients, how you work with addiction? Uh, 
So, a number of things happen. First of all, the child, the Buddha said at some point, uh, in fact, the very first quote in the Dhammapada, the collection of the saying, is something like that, with our thoughts we create the world. Or, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. Basically, it's with our thoughts we create the world that we live in. But what it didn't say, which is the really the insight of modern psychology, is that before with our thoughts and our minds you create the world, the world creates our minds. So then the question is, there's a man right now, for example, who says that the world is a horrible place. I'm quoting directly. Well, if you live in a world which is a horrible place, you're going to have a certain attitude towards the world and sort of a certain way of conducting yourself. This man has just been elected president of the United States. And he lives in a world that's horrible. Now, how does a child get a sense of what the world is like? We get it from our earliest experiences. So what kind of a world did I get? I got a world in which, first of all, um, there is unexplainable suffering, uh, for which I have to compensate somehow. And one way of compensating for suffering or, or, or enduring it or, or dealing with it is to dissociate, to tune out. Now, if you look at the burgeoning diagnosis of attention deficit disorder in our society and the number of kids being diagnosed, what's really happening is that parenting circumstances become so stressful, and because the parents are stressed, the children are stressed, these children are tuning out to protect themselves at a time when their brain is being developing, and now they're being diagnosed left, right, and center with a so-called medical disease, an inheritable medical disease. It's neither a disease nor is it terrible. It's, a, it's an actually a normal response to an abnormal circumstance of parental stress. So what I'm saying is that a lot of the adult dysfunction, mental illness, and physical illness that I see is actually the outcomes of childhood coping mechanisms. Now, the other thing that happens is that children are narcissistic, and I don't mean in any negative sense. I mean in a purely clinical sense, that they think it's all about them. So when bad things are happening, the child will believe that it's about him or her. And then we have to compensate for that. Furthermore, when my mother... And how do you compensate for it? Well, you compensate by developing all kinds of coping mechanisms. Um, almost talks about the theory of holes and where our essence isn't developed uh, or recognized. We develop a hole, which then we try to fill in with the false personality. So really, the what we call our personalities and, and patterns are really finding their origin in coping patterns to cope with the early pain and stress. And... For example, uh, one way to cope, if, you, if your parents are not able to appreciate and accept you the way you need to be, I'm not talking about whether they're doing their best or whether they love you or not, but one way to compensate for that loss is to be extra nice to everybody and to look after everybody else emotionally. These are the people that develop autoimmune disease uh, for reasons that we can discuss. But in everybody with those kind of diseases, I find the same kind of childhood patterns and the same kind of childhood experience. And i just say one more thing, because, Tammy, when you start talking on the subject, I can keep going for two days, but I'll mention one more thing. My mother then gives me to a stranger at one year of age. Now, how do I, how do I um, interpret that? I cannot know that she's doing this to save my life. All I'm experiencing is the abandonment, which means, A, I'm being abandoned, B, uh, I'm not wanted. 
Now, that sense of abandonment that will show up in my marriage relationship decades later at the slightest um, instance, number one, number two, if I'm not wanted and I need to compensate for, I need to compensate for it, one way to compensate is to become a really successful medical doctor where people don't want me all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, that being wanted in the deepest sense is never satisfied by anything externally, which is why it's addictive. You just keep going for it and going for it. So therefore, now I'm a, a workaholic doctor, and that when the beeper goes and the cell phone goes and people want me to look after their illness or their deliver their child or take care of the dying person in the family, every time I'm wanted, therefore I become a workaholic. What then is the impact on my family of a father who is away a lot because he's needing to have his existence validated because his sense of worth was undermined when he was a year old for nobody's fault in the family. It's just the way it went. So what I'm saying is that addictions, physical illnesses, mental illnesses all originate, well, all I say, most of them originate in coping patterns that people adapt early in life, but which then become sources of dysfunction later on. Now, one more clarifying question that I want to ask. You mentioned about your abandonment and sense of being left and how that still comes up in your marriage, even now when you're in your 70s. And here you know so much about transformation and healing. You've been exposed to so many different techniques and teachers. What does that tell us about the process of growth and transformation it still comes up. I think sometimes people have unrealistic ideas about what the human journey is going to be like and the level of healing that they're going to have in their life. Well, I think it's Eckhart Tolle, who, who you also know very well, uh, who said that, I'm paraphrasing him, but that transformation or enlightenment for some people is an event, but for most people it's a process. So for him it was an event. He in the depth of despair, and then he woke up a different man the next morning. That's not to say that his work ended there, but he did have a transformation that was almost instantaneous. Now, for me, and for most people I know, it's not an event. It's a process that happens over time. It's opens of clarifying and going deeper and deeper and uh, closer and closer to your essence. And that, that takes time. In fact, um, I have my epitaph already composed. Oh, please tell. Yeah, it's going to say it was a lot more work than I'd anticipated. <laughs> uh, because, you know, that that process of transformation for most of us is, is work. And it, it also tells us that it's not an intellectual process. So it doesn't matter how many times I read Adyashanti or read Eckhart or read Almas or, or uh, listen to Reginald Ray or, or any number of great teachers or the Buddha himself or Jesus. And it doesn't matter how well I understand intellectually, um, it has to happen on a deeper level. So insight and knowledge is helpful, and, and but as I've said in one of my talks, if if intellectual knowledge could lead to enlightenment, I would have been enlightened a long time before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you also mentioned that through your work with clients and your research that you've seen 
some corollary between certain autoimmune diseases and early coping strategies that people develop. And you mentioned that we could talk more about that. And I think it's important to clarify exactly what you mean. And, and really, I'd love to understand more how you see the immune system and what supports a healthy immune system and what coping strategies do just the opposite and make us vulnerable at the level of our immune system. Sure. Well, the first thing we have to understand is that the immune system is not a separate system. So that modern science, quite apart from the insights of traditional medicinal practices around the world, Chinese qi medicine and, and, and Indian Ayurvedic medicine and shamanic practices internationally, have always taken this for granted that mind and body can't be separated. Now, Western medical practice separates mind from the body. And as George Engel, who's a Harvard psychiatrist back in the 1970s, wrote, there's a kind of mind-body dualism that, that pervades medical practice. And he called for a new model that was a more of a unitary model, and that was 40 years ago. Well, his words have not been heeded yet. So we still practice this separation model. In fact, science has shown, I'm talking about hard science now, has shown that the immune system and the emotional apparatus, what we call the psyche, uh, the hormonal apparatus, uh, and the nervous system are not separable. They're actually one system. There are different manifestations, different um, variations of the same system. And that's because we're complex being. We have to have complex, specialized activities to keep us in balance internally and to protect us externally. But it's still the same system. Therefore, the immune system is not separable from our emotional apparatus. So when things happen emotionally, they inevitably have an impact on the immune system as well. That's just how it works. And that's not a miracle. It just couldn't be any other way. And... I've written about in, in one of my books about the actual science that shows that these so-called separate systems, nervous system, hormonal, immune, and emotional systems, and I should also throw in at least the gut and also the cardiovascular system, they're not separable at all. They're just different manifestations of the same process whose function it is to keep our internal homeostasis or, or physiological, psychological, and biochemical balance and also to modulate our relationships with our, the external world. And so when people suppress themselves emotionally, and they do that as a coping mechanism, let's say that uh, you're two years old and you have a tantrum, but there's nothing wrong with being two-year-old and showing a tantrum because as a two-year-old, you can't help it. You don't get to have a cookie before dinner. You might throw a tantrum. But you shouldn't have the cookie. If your parents are doing their job, they're not going to give you a cookie before dinner. So you're going to have a tantrum. But what if your parents grew up in a home where there was a lot of rage? Your parents are terrified of rage. So they give you the message that um, good little girls don't get angry. The message you get is that angry little girls don't get loved. So to maintain your relationship with your parents, then, you or your brain actually automatically, not you consciously, but your brain automatically then will repress anger in order to maintain a relationship with parents who can't handle your anger. Because the maintaining that relationship is the only way to ensure your survival. So you repress that anger. 
it's been shown in study after study that the repression of anger also represses the immune system for the very simple reason that A, the, the two systems are part and parcel of the same super system, number one, and number two, healthy anger, healthy anger and the immune system both have the same function, which is to protect you. So when you're suppressing your self-protection in one way, you're suppressing it in another way as well, and that same system will there turn against you. Now you've got autoimmune disease. And when I interviewed people with uh, scleroderma or colitis or Crohn's or multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis or any number of autoimmune conditions, it's all the same pattern. That in childhood, they learned, not consciously but automatically, to repress themselves, and that the emotional repression then disorganizes the immune system. Can you help me understand that very last thing you said, how the emotional repression disorganizes the immune system? Well, it's been shown, for example, that um, women who um, repress their anger, they have less activity of a group of immune cells called natural killer cells. And these natural killer cells have the job of fighting foreign invaders like bacteria and viruses, but also malignancy, which is a foreign body in the body. So people who repress uh, healthy anger also are uh, suppressing the activity of their natural killer cells, which means they're more prone to illness, including cancer. That's just one of other examples. Sure. Sure. Now I'm feeling so good about being angry. There's no end to this, Gabor. I'm, well, I'm getting very happy over here. I like, you know, being I, I, in touch I with healthy say, anger. Healthy yeah, there's unhealthy anger, which is, can also kill you. So in the aftermath of a rage episode, your risk of a heart attack or a stroke double for the next two hours because now you have too much adrenaline, your blood vessels are narrow, there's more clotting factors, your blood pressure goes up. So unhealthy anger also raises your risk of illness. So distinguish for our listeners between healthy and unhealthy anger and how I know the difference. Well... I think in one of his books, Eckhart gives a beautiful example of, of what if human beings were like ducks. I don't know if you remember that passage where he talks about on the pond, two ducks, one swim across the other one, swims too close to the other one. So the first duck will then quack and rustle his feathers and ruffle his feathers and chase the other duck off. But, at that, but when he does that, it's over. It's finished with it. That's healthy anger. It's a boundary defense. But then Eckhart says, what if the human being, sorry, what if the duck was like a human being? Then when an incident was over, the anger would continue, and he'd say to himself, boy, that guy, he's always coming near me. He did it last week. What's wrong with him anyway? I bet next week he'll go it again. I, ha- I hate that guy. That's the unhealthy anger. Uh-huh. Healthy anger is in the present, and it has the job of uh, boundary defense, which you need. We have a system in our brain that's specifically for rage, and healthy rage is simply a boundary defense. All animals have it. But unhealthy rage has not to do with the present or self-protection. It has to do with recruiting negative memories from the past and projecting them into the present and the future. So there's no end to it. So there's no, there's no resolution of it. There's no regulation of it. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between healthy and unhealthy anger. The first is present-based. It's a boundary defense. The second is past-based, and it's... Um, self-magnifying. 
In your book, When the Body Says No, where you go into quite some detail about this mind-body functioning in the immune system, you say that one of the things we need to stay healthy is something that you call emotional competence. And I think as you're talking here about healthy anger, you're pointing to an aspect of emotional competence. But I'm curious to know what emotional competence looks like to you in someone when you say, oh, that person, they're emotionally competent. Here's what the competency looks like. Well, it means that we're in the present and uh, that we don't take things personally. And it means that our response to the situation corresponds to the needs of the present moment and is not governed by uh, past impressions and past hurts and past experiences. So, um, you say to me, um, let's assume you might say to me, Gabor, I'm bored with this conversation. I would take that as a statement about you. I would not let it undermine my sense of value of myself. I would not get angry with you. I would just say, huh, well, I'm curious why you say that. What's happening for you? But if I'm not emotionally competent, then your statement that you're bored talking with me will simply reinforce my deficient sense of self, my hurts, my, the, my abandonment circuits might get triggered again, and I'm a, I may even go into a rage as a way of protecting myself from the sadness and the disappointment, which is not emotionally competent at all. So it really has to do with being in the present. But you said a, a qualifier about being in the present and having the experience and it being impersonal, and I was kind of with you, and then you said, and not being governed by, I don't think you exactly used the words past conditioning, but by past experiences, we could say, you know, traumas that the person has experienced in the past or previous disappointments, something like that, anything from the past. And I thought, wow, that's competent? That sounds like being an emotional genius to me. I mean, that's a lot. How many people don't have their emotional experiences colored by something that happened in the past? That's a pretty high bar. Fair enough. Thank you. Thanks for calling me on that. Well, I can climb down from that high perch for a moment um, and add another layer then. It simply means that when things do get riled in you, you're aware of them. So let's give you an abandonment example that I gleefully cite these days. Um, I'm 73 now, but let's make it when I was young and stupid two years ago when I was 71. And uh, I arrived home from Philadelphia from a speaking trip back to Vancouver, B.C., where I live. My wife, Ray, is going to pick me up at the airport, but and I'm feeling really good about myself because I gave a good talk, good response. The airline bumped me up to first class on the way home. I couldn't be feeling better. And I think, boy, I finally got it. You know, I'm just in a good space. It's always a setup for a problem. I land, or the airplane lands, and I get a text from my wife that says, I'm still at home. Do you still want me to come? Well, she's a painter. And so painters get caught up in their art, and time disappears for them. That's all that happened. My response is a terse, never mind. And I call it, I have to have the 
deeply traumatic experience of calling a cab to take mm-hmm. me home, 20 minute ride from the airport. And when I get home, I barely even want to talk to her or look at her. Well, emotional competence, and what's happening is that my abandonment circuits have been triggered. My emotional competence is not necessarily that those circuits would not have been triggered. Emotional competence would have been that I would have noticed that, oh, is these old feelings are present right now, and I just have to be with them, but not project them onto my wife. So competence, in that sense, doesn't mean no reactivity and being triggered, but it does mean the capacity to take responsibility uh, when those emotions get triggered. And then I'd love for you to make the link when we're living in an emotionally competent way how that affects our health and what the kind of mechanism is inside the body that it responds positively to this type of emotional competence. Well, um, again, to go back to my earlier example, uh, you said something about being bored in this conversation. Um, and I'm not emotionally competent. Um, then that statement of yours will trigger every anxiety that I have. And then I make I make work very very hard to please you, to excite you, to engage you. In other words, I will suppress my own needs at that moment uh, and my connection to myself in order to become the person that you will accept. Now that effort over a lifetime is very very stressful. It's physiologically stressful. Because it means you're always taking on more than you can handle. You're always putting yourself into situations where demands will be made on you that are hard on your system. That chronic stress of trying to please people and, and trying to be like the one that they will accept will have an impact on your physiology. And there's a wonderful book. You may be familiar with it. Um, is it Anita Manjani. Uh, the book is called Dying to Be Me. Are you aware of that book at all? I'm not. Okay, all right. Well, so this woman is is in hospital bed in Singapore, I think. Um, this is published three years ago. She's never heard of me or read my book, When the Body Says No, but it's exactly the same story. So she's she's in um, hospital with terminally ill with lymphoma. She's got maybe three weeks to live, literally three weeks to live, and the medical doctors can do nothing for her. And then she's an out-of-body experience in which she gets that all her life she's tried to please others. She's never been for herself. And that this is actually killing her. And when she comes back into her body, she's a different person. She's transformed. She's had one of these experiences that you can't account for, you can't prescribe, and you can't strive for, but it happened to her. And so that's the type, and she walks out of the hospital totally free of cancer and has been free of cancer ever since. And such stories are, I wouldn't say common, but they're certainly more than um, rare. And uh, the book is called Dying to Be Me. Literally, she had to be nearly on the verge of death to become herself. And not being herself is what then caused the immune system perturbance that led to her lymphoma. And I've seen that over and over and over and over again.
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. You offer this interesting list in the book, When the Body Says No, of different coping styles, or you call them beliefs, unconscious beliefs, that magnify people's risk for illness. This idea of pleasing other people, you've already talked about the idea of not expressing anger as something that magnifies our risk. But I wanted to highlight a couple of the things that you put in this list of beliefs that magnify our risk for illness. And here's one. I'm responsible for the whole world. I thought that was interesting, the sense of, you know, I feel responsible for everything that's happening, especially in light of our current political situation. And I know I've talked to some people who have said things like, I can't believe the world is in such terrible condition during my lifetime. I feel responsible. Well, it depends how you want to use the word responsible. If you want to use the word responsible in the sense that I'm guilty, I'm to be blamed, that's a heavy burden to lay on oneself. But if you want to use the word in the sense that's more helpful and profound, I think, then responsible simply means responsible, Mm -hmm. the capacity to respond. Now, we're 100% responsible in that sense. So we can respond to this world. You know, somebody who, like myself, and without over-dramatizing it, just stating the bald facts, who was nearly thrown into an oven at age six months, you can't tell me that the world is getting worse. So the sense that the world is getting worse, there's a lot of truth behind that that, that observation, but really what it is, is is history cycling itself. And there have always been horrible things in the world. The latest manifestation is, you know, apart, of course, from the overarching threat of global climate change, we can put an end to us all. But in a general sense, the world has always been a difficult place where there's been terrible things happening and beautiful things happening at the same time. So um, I, I don't perceive the world as any worse because a certain person got elected. It's just the world declaring some of its nature or some of its way of being. Okay, well, that's helpful, and I think especially hearing it from you, I notice I find perspective creating for me. But I want to just understand this idea if somebody feels, and let's not get too hung up on the word, but, you know, I feel a sense of the burden of the whole world. And, yeah, and, and how this might magnify someone's risk for illness. Yeah. So, in my talks, on this subject, I quote some obituaries. And obituaries are really interesting because you heard the expression, the good die young. Yeah. Well, they do. Because the people that are considered good are the people that do way more than they need to for others all the time and without regard for themselves. So there's actually an obituary that I quote. This is almost uh, incredible, except it's verbatim out of Canada's national newspaper, the Global Mail a 71-year-old physician who dies in Ottawa 
of cancer. And obituary says, and notice that it says it in a laudatory way. It says, Sidney and his mother had an incredibly special relationship, a bond that was apparent in all aspects of their lives. Um, as a married man with young children, Sidney had dinner with his parents every day. Then he would arrive home where his wife, Rosalind, and their four young children waited for him, greeted by yet another dinner to eat and to enjoy. And it said, Sid kept having two dinners a day for years until gradual weight gain began to raise suspicions. Now, this man believed, A, that he was responsible for everybody else's feels. So he could not say to his mother, Mom, you know, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm going to have dinner with my family most of the time. And he couldn't say to his wife, Rosalind, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but once or twice a week, my parents being old and being needy of me, I'm going to have dinner with them. He tried to please everybody. He was responsible for everybody felt. So, And the second belief that he had, that he must never disappoint anybody. But those beliefs are very common to people that develop cancer. Again, for reasons that I've already alluded to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, let me tell you an interesting story, if I may. Please. Uh, Remember Hillary Clinton's pneumonia? Yeah. I remember that she almost fell. She collapsed. Yep. Her, her Secret Service detail had to hold her up and put her into a van. So at the uh, Democratic Convention, when she was nominated, they told uh, there was a kind of a hagiographic or very laudatory video about her life, narrated by insonorous and laudatory terms by Morgan Freeman. I remember that. And they told a story about her childhood. And the story was that Hillary is four years old, and she runs into her house scared because neighborhood kids are bullying and threatening her. And the mother says, and again, this is presented in an example of great parenting and character building. And her mother says to her, there are no room for cowards in this house. Now you get out there and figure out what to do about those kids. And what's the actual message to the child? There's no room for vulnerability in this house. There's no room for your emotions in this house. And you're on your own. Suck it up. Sixty-odd years later, that woman becomes an emotionally opaque person to the extent that people don't experience her as quite human, as many people had that problem with her. And she has pneumonia, and she won't tell anybody about it. That poor woman, the way she coped with that particular kind of parenting made her maybe successful in a certain sense, but also restricted her emotional competence in another sense. So that these patterns go way, way back, and they have health consequences. Because it also meant that her body was saying no, and she didn't listen. I want to address very specifically about the phrasing burden of responsibility or burden by responsibility. We all want to be responsible. We all want to be able to respond to what's going on in the world. It's very positive to care about the state of the world, to have empathy for others and to notice and wish to do something about the suffering, unfairness, and uh, just general malaise that we see around us. It's quite another thing to be burdened by it. And Responsibility will not make us ill, but the burden will make us ill. When we're carrying every burden, that'll tell on our physical or emotional mental health. And to the people that experience that burden, I'm going to say this. Your sense of burden, in my experience, in my own experience with myself, and also that with working with 
hundreds of others, that burden does not have to do with the state of the world. That has to do with your psychological, emotional orientation. And that was developed long before you knew anything about the world. That was developed early in your life in relationship to your environment that nurtured you. And usually the people that feel burdened are people whose parents were troubled, uh, distressed, dysfunctional. And the child felt a responsibility for making the parents happy. And so that for a child, that kind of responsibility is a burden. It's one that no child should have to take on. But many of us do because children automatically and unconsciously make everything about themselves. So when they experience witness or stress around them, they think it's because of them and it's their job to fix it. And that's the burden if you experience, you really need to drop. And when you drop it, then you can be responsible in a genuine present moment sense for how you deal with and try to address the problems you see out there in the world. In the book, When the Body Says No, you talk about how our body is a teacher, in a sense, when it's giving us these messages of stopping and taking care of ourselves. And I'm curious to know, in your own life and health process, have you dealt with an illness that became a teacher for you, and in what way? Well, uh, knock on wood, I've been physically healthy except for severe low back problems, which themselves are a sign of something, as I know full well. But I've had more health issues in the emotional, psychological sense. I've been diagnosed with ADHD. In fact, my first book is about that condition. And uh, I've been severely depressed. And so that's how my system has said no. Just to ask about the diagnosis of ADHD, I mean, here you are, you're so tremendously accomplished and have written gobs of articles and four-plus books. I don't understand that diagnosis and how much you've accomplished as a professional. Well, there are high-functioning people with ADHD, you know. Um, Mozart was probably one of them. Um, when you actually look at his life... John Lennon was another, for sure, when I read his biography. Um, there's a range uh, in every condition, from milder to severe. I'm not the most severe case you'll ever met. And in ADHD, it's not a complete deficit of attention. It's a selective deficit of attention. So when there's... Um, for example, I've always wanted to be a doctor. Growing up, I never wanted to be anything else. But my difficulty concentrating and therefore my propensity to have to study midnight to late in the morning before every exam allowed me to do well in courses where my articulateness and self-expression, like in English and history, could cover up a whole holes in my knowledge. But the science courses which I needed to get into medical school, I couldn't have done. So um, I drifted into high school teaching. Really, I drifted into it. I got a BA, and mostly by not attending classes and staying up all night before every exam. Literally one night, I stayed studied for the wrong exam, so I, I came into a European literature exam having studied Shakespeare all night. 
just because I didn't pay attention to the exam schedule. And I could tell you a lot of hair-raising stories like that. And it wasn't until I was older, in my late 20s, that I developed the discipline enough to compensate for my inattention. And then I really had to work very hard to get into medical school and to get through it. Much harder than some of my classmates. Mm-hmm. Not for lack of intelligence, just because lack of focus. And that lack of focus and the impulse regulation problems that go along with it showed up very heavily in my personal relationships, uh, in my home life, and even in my work. So, yeah, I'm bright and I'm talented, um, gifted in some ways for sure. But what might I have achieved if I didn't have the attention deficit? Maybe a lot more. I don't know. I'm not going to question it, and I'm not going to cry about it. I'm just telling you that if you read that book, you'll see in what significant ways that condition actually played havoc with my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, how did it begin? It begins as a coping mechanism with that early stress. Because when my mother is stressed, I'm stressed. Now, the way you deal with stress is you fight back or you escape or you ask for help. But what do you do when you can't do either any of those? You don't do anything. The mind will then kick in. And one way it will kick in to protect you is by dissociating, by tuning out. But if an infant, a young child, is living in a very stressed environment and has to tune out a lot, that tuning out becomes programmed into the brain. So, I don't know about you, but I've never heard, as much as I love classical music, for example, I've never heard a single movement of a single symphony from beginning to the end. Never. Because my mind will go elsewhere automatically. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that ADHD was a response to not feeling fully met, held, loved, and it was a kind of escape into disembodiment and a dream space of going other places, traveling, not being present, because being present was too painful as a young person. And that's a core part of your understanding of ADHD? Well, uh, this is my view on ADHD and mental illness in general. Um, deviates, not deviates, I should say, departs from the standard medical view. So, again, I see most mental health issues as being rooted in childhood compensations. So, there's an article published in the journal Pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. You could get more prestigious than that. And the article is from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child, published in 2012. And if I can quote from it, they say that growing scientific evidence demonstrates that social and physical environments that threaten human development because of scarcity, stress, or instability lead to short-term physiologic and psychological adjustments that are necessary for immediate survival and adaptation, but which may come at a significant cost to long-term outcomes in learning, learning, behavior, health, and longevity. In other words, the way young children cope with stress and instability, help them endure those difficult times, but those same coping mechanisms become source of pathology later on. And that's what I've seen all along. And ADHD is a typical example. 
And if you want to know why the diagnosis is burgeoning, why all these millions of kids are on medications, why more and more kids are being diagnosed, it's precisely because it is not a genetic disease. It's not an inherited disease. It's not a disease at all. It's a problem of development. And when kids are developing in circumstances that are stressful, then tuning out is one of their coping mechanisms. And that gets wired into the brain in the early years of brain development. It's really that simple. No other explanation can account for why all these kids all of a sudden. But if you see it as a social problem because of increasing stress in society, then you can totally understand as more parents are stressed, the children feel the pain of the parents, they can't escape from it, they can't fight back, they can't ask for help. One of the ways they cope with it, they tune out. Five years later, 10 years later, 30 years later, they'll be diagnosed with ADHD. And then we think, no, we have a medical problem. No, you don't. You have a developmental problem, which began as a coping mechanism. And what have you found is effective to help people, someone who has this ADHD diagnosis, you obviously had to help yourself as well, stay embodied and not make that dissociated move during times of stress? What helps? Well, first of all, it depends on at what age. Let's say I'm the physician and you're coming to me for help. It depends on what's, what age do I meet you. So if, if a child is brought to me with ADHD, and many children were after I became a bit of a specialist in it, not formally but practically, then I don't try to fix the kid. I say to the parents, this child is manifesting a family, multi-generational family dynamic. The more stressed there is, the more likely it is to tune out. The less secure he feels with you, the more likely it is to tune out and to act out. So let's look at what stresses there are in a family environment. How are your relationship with one another? How stressed are you on your job? Um, how do you understand your child's acting out? Now that phrase acting out is interesting because we usually mean that the kid is behaving badly, but when you look at the phrase acting out from an etymological point of view, it simply means you portray in behavior something you haven't got the words to say in language. Like in a game of charades, you can't speak, you have to act it out. So then let's, so I, I teach two things to parents. One is that how they are and how they live their lives and what kind of environment there's in the home has a lot to do with the child's mental states. And so the more we can regularize and, and um, balance that, the less need the child will have to tune out, number one. And number two, the child's already imprinted behaviors have to be understood not as behavior problems, but as manifestations of emotional pain. And then how do we assuage that pain? So that's what I do with the child. I'll talk to the parents about it. I'm not blaming the parents. They did their best. But their best was, was constrained by societal stress and their own traumatic history and, you know, whatever else is going on in their lives. So the question then is how do we balance, how do we bring some peace into the home environment? That's how you help the child. And you now if you're an adult, then I talk about self-parenting because now you, you're the one who has to parent yourself. So I'll say, well, what are the stresses in your life? Because the more stressed you are, the more tuned out you'll be. So what is stressing you? Your relationships, your job, how you see yourself, the sense of shame that you're carrying about your very existence. Um, how well do you treat yourself? If you were your own parent, what kind of food do would you want to give yourself? How often would you take yourself out in nature so that you can commune with something greater than yourself? 
how much time do you spend just resting or paying attention to yourself in a sense of, say, mindfulness work, meditation, which is difficult for people with AD, by the way, or, or yoga, which is easier because it involves some movement. But just how well are you taking care of yourself? So you may choose to take medications if that helps you symptomatically, but don't think for a moment that the medications solve the problem. They're just dealing with a symptom. Solving the problem means transforming your relationship to yourself. I'm talking to an adult now. And the problem with the child means transforming the child's relationship to the parents. Mm -hmm. That's very clear. Now, I wanted to also pick up, you mentioned your own journey through depression as a person. And, you know, this is something that's been an important topic for me to look into. That sounds true. We published an anthology of about 20 different people, different writers, artists, as well as psychologists, called Darkness Before Dawn, Redefining the Journey Through Depression. And I'm curious to know how you view it, you know, from your own experience as a passage of some kind that taught you something. Clearly, from listening to you and becoming somewhat familiar with some of your writing, you don't create simple answers. I mean, you talk about things not just from a biological perspective, but from a social, a spiritual, a psychological. That's one of the things I really like about you. Well, thank you. And the reason for that is that you cannot separate the biological from the psychological. So George Anvil, that Harvard psychiatrist that I quoted, he called for a biopsychosocial perspective, which recognizes that human biology is actually shaped by our psychological and social relationships. To give you two very obvious examples, um, it's been known for a long time, many studies have shown that the more stressed the parents are, the more likely the kid is to have asthma. Now, I'm not going to go into the... There's very simple physiological pathways by which that happens. But I, for lack of time, I'm not going to go into that. But I'll tell you, but it's almost predictable that the more stressed the parents are, the more medication for asthma the child will need. And this has been shown in a whole number of studies. It's also been shown that in Chicago, Puerto Rican kids are most likely to have asthma because they're the ones that they're the, seem to be the most psycho-socially stressed, economically stressed population. Another study this year, I'm sorry, last year, 2015 or 16, showed that an American black woman, the more episodes of racism she experiences, the greater her risk of asthma. In other words, you can't separate the mind from the body. And that's because, again, it's all one system. Having said which, I've forgotten what, oh yeah, depression, okay. Yeah. It's the same with depression, okay? So the, 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 the biological view of depression is that it's a problem of lack of serotonin in your brain, serotonin being a neurotransmitter, a chemical messenger implicated in mood regulation, amongst other functions. So the SSRIs, the selective serotonin uptake inhibitors, like Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft and Celexa and the others, they all elevate by a certain mechanism the activity of serotonin in the brain. But serotonin levels are set very early in life based on our emotional relationships with our parents. And already, not only that, but also what happens in utero, how much stress the pregnant woman has while she's carrying you inside the womb. In other words, the biology is, is potentiated and, and, and conditioned by uh, our psychological and social relationships. And if you like the case of American women, black women, and asthma, you can see that we're not dealing with a medical problem here. We're dealing with a social problem here that manifests as a medical issue. 
Now, depression, if you actually look at the word depression, what does it mean to depress something? But hold Imagine. it down, yeah, hold it down. Pushing it down, right? So, remember I said that it all begins as a coping mechanism. So, let's go back to the hypothetical example of the two-year-old who throws a tantrum whose parents can't handle the anger. What will the child do to maintain a relationship with the parents? Is to repress the anger, to push it down. Uh, depression is largely about the suppression of negative emotions or emotions we are afraid to feel because if we did, it would bring us conf into conflict with our early environment. It's not such a huge mystery as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Not to mention your brain physiology is being affected by those dynamics. In your own life then, this learning of emotional competence in the way that you described it, was that a working, successful response, if you will, to depression for you? Well, depression is not an emotion. It's a state of mind in which emotions are actually repressed. But, again, uh, Almas has a wonderful quote where he says that your conflicts and all the difficult things the problematic issues in your life are not chance or haphazard. He says they're actually yours. And he says they're actually brought to you by a part of you that loves you so much that it wants you to learn about yourself and reality. And so it'll make you suffer if you don't listen. What else can it do? He says that's his job. So we can look at depression as just a medical disease to get rid of. Or we can look at it as a teacher. Uh, that guides us closer to ourselves. So, in the case of depression, you might say, well, then what have I been pushing down? And how did I learn that I had to push certain things down? And how do I relate to that depression now? Do I relate it to as an enemy to be get rid of? Or as a condition to be medicated? Or something that'll instigate an inquiry into how I live my life and my relationship to myself. Having said that, I really want to emphasize that I'm not against medications. I've taken them myself. Sometimes I think they're essential for some people, as long as we recognize that they're not the answer to anything. They uh, help. They can provide relief. They can provide... When you're caught in the swamp, and if you lift one leg... The other one sinks deeper into the muck. You want to be put on dry land. The medications, for some people, can put them on that dry land where they can, when they can start walking. But you still have to walk. So the medications will not get you where you want to go. But sometimes, in some situations, they can put you on dry land. But the unfortunate problem is that um, most of psychiatry uh, is based on this biological view of human beings that if you're depressed, there's not enough serotonin. Let's give you a drug to elevate serotonin levels, and that's it. And the average medical student and the average psychiatr psychiatrist, their mind is not trained in trauma. They don't even heard the, they don't even hear the word trauma in all their years of training. And they don't learn about brain development. They learn they don't learn about childhood development. They just learn about physiology. Well, if that's what, and then pathology. So they have no holistic understanding of human beings, which is why people find it so difficult to get help. Mm -hmm.
You know, I'm going to share now a confession with you. At the beginning of this conversation, I had a secret goal, and just me and myself here had this goal, which was through the course of spending an hour with you and getting to know you a little bit, could I start to see through the lens, if you will, that you see illness and healing? How does Gabor see this complex question of illness and healing when we put together the social components with the spiritual needs of the individual, the bio, psycho, social, as you described here in this conversation. And I feel like I'm sort of getting in touch with some of the puzzle pieces, if you will. But I wonder, as we bring our conversation to a close, if you would be willing to just summarize for me, in a sense, if there is a kind of working, might not be a map, but a working kind of framework that you view healing through. All right. So the word healing uh, comes from an Anglo-Saxon word for wholeness. So when we ask how do we heal, the question is how do we become whole? And that raises the question, how is it that we're not whole to start with? And uh, again, it's... Uh, um, almost who says that the fundamental problem, the, um, the greatest catastrophe, he says, is not that there was no love or support in our childhoods. He says the greater calamity caused by the first calamity is that you lost the connection to your essence. So he says that's much more important than whether your mother or father loved you or not. So the real source of disconnect, then, is as a result of the environmental problems you and I have touched upon, we lose connection with ourselves. And that loss of connection with ourselves can manifest in physical or any number of physical and mental health conditions. So healing, then, is reconnecting, becoming whole again. That's the origin of the word healing. And that has to begin with recognizing how we're not whole. It has to be recognizing in all the ways, when it comes to physical illness, you have to start paying attention to your body. So what is your body telling you? And the body says no. The body will say no in all kinds of ways if you don't know how to say it. If you take on more than what's good for you, your body's going to say no. It's going to say no in the form of a cough, a form of back pain, stomach aches, migraines, um, nervousness, dry mouth, poor sleep, uh, muscle tension, rashes, frequent illnesses in all kinds of ways. So first of all, listen to our bodies. Because one of the alienations that beset us in modern society is that we lose connection to our bodies. Secondly, um, because our emotions were not received and welcomed and processed when we were small, we even lose touch with our emotions. So then you have to do, work to do the work to reconnect. So it's all about reconnection. If I can put healing in, in a simple phrase, I'd say it's reconnection. And that can happen through a whole number of modalities. It can happen through uh, psychotherapy, of course, through reading the works of the great teachers, some of whom I've quoted today. Uh, possibly I'll venture to say reading my own. Um, it can happen through uh, meditation. It can happen through yoga, other forms of spiritual work. Uh, somatic experiencing, EMDR, um, <clears throat> physical activity, 
uh, paying attention to what we eat. All these things have to go into it, but it's all about reconnecting. And just as a final question to end on, here you are, you mentioned 73 years old at this point, and I'm wondering, what is your current focus now? What really matters to you now at this point in your life? You have to leave the toughest for the last, did you, Danny? It's a lot of work, this this whole thing. It's a lot of work. <laughs> a lot more work than I anticipated. Well, um, you know, I'm still very committed to uh, teaching people. I mean, I just think what I'm saying is so important. Not because I'm saying it, but because it's true. And um, so I'm committed to teaching, um, to speaking and seminars and writing that I'm doing. I'm committed to transformation. Um, so I sometimes I work with psychedelics. There'll be a whole other conversation about my work with psychedelic plants and, and helping promoting people's transformation through that work. On a personal level, I'm, as I said to you earlier, I discovered I was, I lucked into a yoga practice. And so, and yoga is all about unity, of course. It's all about becoming one with oneself and whatever's out there or around us and in us. So now I have a daily yoga practice that I'm totally committed to. And with my ADD, it's been very difficult to do any kind of a regular practice about anything. But I'm very pleased this punch to say that for nearly three months now I've had uh, at least a 45 minute a day yoga practice which is all for me it doesn't matter where I am where I've traveled or what I'm doing or what's going on in my life uh, I'll take that time just for me to connect with my body and to uh, connect with the spirit and just to um, promote my own healing and, and ongoing transformation and I'm also committed to a loving, beautiful relationship with my spouse of uh, 50 years. Mm. Uh, the marriage is 47 years old, but but that relationship has been the ground of so much learning and growth and suffering and mutual pain and mutual joy, but it's also my greatest teacher. So these are all the things that I'm committed to. Mm-hmm. And in the future, I would love to have a separate conversation with you on psychedelic therapy. I think that's an area that I have a lot of questions, and if I confess, also concerns. And I think we would have to devote a whole session to that, but I'd love to talk with you about that. And to take a moment now just to thank you for the conversation that we've had, and also for you joining our work here at Sounds True and In the near future, you'll be recording an audio learning series with us that will come out that will delve deeper into your work on healing and wholeness and reconnection. And I just, I feel a very natural warmth and resonance with you, Gabor. I feel grateful that you're on the planet. Thank you. Thanks for all that work. Thank you, Tammy. I mean, I've listened to your words for, uh, this is Sounds True Presents, and the voice is so unmistakable. And the warmth behind the voice is also unmistakable. So it's a great pleasure to speak with you. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.